0: Sarah read a moment ago from Isaiah 53. If you're here this morning and you don't have a copy of the Bible, please consider the one that you find around you a gift, as long as it doesn't have somebody's name stamped on the front, right? Don't steal somebody's Bible. But uh, if it doesn't, it's our gift to you. Isaiah 53, basically right in the middle of your Bible. Most of them will have a table of contents at the front if you're unfamiliar uh, with orienting yourself to the Scriptures. Uh, Isaiah 53, uh, actually Isaiah 52 and 53, will serve as our sermon text this morning. Uh, The last five weeks for me have been a ton of Uber rides and plane flights and uh, bus fares, much of that in cities that I'm uh, somewhat unfamiliar with, cultures that I'm unfamiliar with. And uh, anytime you find yourself in a place that is unfamiliar to you and you're trying to get from one destination to the next, you've really got two ideas or, or two ways of orienting yourself. One, you have somebody that is familiar with that place who can design and map out a plan for you. So they draw a diagram, a sketch, you know, you go through this terminal and you catch this Uber here and this Uber will take you to this point and then you're going to check through security here and then, you know, all all the things. So you can have a, a sketch, a design for you. Or you can orient yourself to a person. A person who knows and understands that culture. Someone who's been there before, who knows the process, who knows how to get from one place to the next. Now, which of those is a better plan to get from point A to point B? Clearly, it's a person, right? By orienting yourself to a person, not a sketch, not a design, not a, a drawing, but, but a person who understands the path, you get to the destination more Uh, More effectively, and our team that was in Turkey this past week uh, experienced that very clearly, a person is better than a path. Christianity, and especially Easter, is about orienting ourselves to a person. Throughout history, 2,000 years of history, this day has marked something significant, not something significant about a path of religion, not something significant about a way of orienting your life, but something significant that happened to a person, and by virtue of orienting ourselves to that person, we experience then the salvation, forgiveness, joy, peace, hope that we all long for. This is not true for other religions. Other religions attempt to orient us to a path to follow, and if that is the outcome, then, what you're left with on a day like this is a lot of pressure. Pressure to live according to the path. And if you don't, you're crushed. Christianity stands unique as a faith that rests entirely On a person. And if that person did what that person said they would do, the pressure's off. The pressure's off both in this life and in the life to come. The servant songs in Isaiah that we've been considering these four weeks are making this grand point. Notice that the songs, each one that we've considered, have been pointing our attention to a person. A person who is going to give light A person who is going to bring justice. A person who is going to model obedience. And in our passage this morning that Sarah has already read for us, a person who is going to do the unthinkable. A promised servant who is going to offer himself up for sinful men and women. In fact, if you wanted to boil an Easter sermon down to one word, it could be that for. Easter is the message of God for you and God for me. To make that point, just scan Isaiah 53 with your eyes. And I want you to notice, and perhaps you could do it this evening, notice how many times the word for or the close synonym here because shows up in this song. Notice how many times Isaiah in his writing makes the point that something that this servant is doing is for you or because of you. Back in chapter 52, God begins by reminding his people of his care for them. He was faithful in delivering them from the Egyptians. He's rehearsing this faithfulness using the foremost story in Israel's experience, the Exodus, to tell the the, the, the ways that he has cared for his people. And he points out, as chapter 52 plays out, that in spite of his miraculous salvation, the people continued to rebel against him. They even had a clear path, to go with my opening illustration, they had a clear path to follow the Ten Commandments but they're unable to follow the path that was given. They were not faithful to him, though he had been faithful to them. So Isaiah shifts to another mention of this servant who's going to come. He knows that even this generation is not going to be faithful to follow the path, even if God gave them another one. So they need a person to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. Look in verse 13 of chapter 52. This is the testimony of Isaiah. He says, my servant is going to be successful. He's going to be lifted up, raised, and greatly exalted. Now, it's reading into the text more than is here to think that the first hearers of this prophecy would have understood this in light of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. But later interpreters are going to grab verses like this and apply them. They're going to overlay this to what Jesus has accomplished. A servant who is lifted up, who was exalted. And if you were anticipating what one might look like, if if he were going to be this raised, lifted up, greatly exalted servant, what would you expect My guess is that you would expect the exact opposite of what we get in verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah 53. I'll reread the text there. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. This God for you, this servant for you, is described using the terms that are the exact opposite of a highly exalted, raised-up one. No majesty that people are going to take notice. No appearance that's going to make him desirable. He's not going to be popular. In fact, it's going to be the opposite of that. He's going to be despised and rejected. His life is going to be marked by suffering and sickness. He'll be someone that people turn away from. This greatly exalted servant would not be valued. It's fascinating that at the outset of this poetic picture of the coming servant, we meet a servant who becomes what we want to avoid. Think of how much effort we spend avoiding the very things that this highly exalted servant is described as embodying. We want people to notice us. We want a desirable appearance. We want people to turn to us and not away from us. We'll do almost anything to not be despised or rejected. And forget about it when it comes to suffering and sickness. Think about how much money and energy we spend trying to avoid these things and how many of the fears that we came into this room experiencing revolve around these very themes. And yet, it is the promised Messiah who came into this world and embraced these realities. He took them on himself. And if our lives are oriented to him, to the person of Christ, we would be foolish to think that we would avoid them as well. In fact, when we walk through these challenges, the gift of God's grace is that we experience the closest association to this servant. As Paul would say in Colossians 1, I actually rejoice in my sufferings because in my flesh, I'm filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. That somehow the church, as we corporately experience this despised, rejected, sick, suffering life, we are united with the person of Christ who experienced them for us. This Easter, we can be reminded that the servant is for us, Because he suffers for us. Secondly, he's a servant who takes the punishment that we know we deserve. He's a servant who experiences what we want to avoid, and then he's a servant who takes the punishment that we know we deserve. Look at verses 4 through 6. He himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. We in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him. We are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We've turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him, and there's my word, for the iniquity of us all. Look in those three verses. What belongs to you, to me, in those verses? Sickness? Pain? Rebellion, iniquity, repeated twice. Seems like we've got two realities at play there, sickness and pain, just the the general experience of life in a fallen world, a lot of brokenness that we step into just by being people. But it doesn't stop there because then we get some clear volitional something we've done. Rebellion, iniquity, This is personal sin. Later in the passage, he's going to be crushed for the rebels. It's not a way you like to think of yourself, is it? This is a testimony to the fact that we have all broken God's law. Like sheep, we've gone astray, as the text tells us. What belongs to the servant in these three verses? He bears those sicknesses, he carries those pains. He's pierced, he's crushed, he's punished, he was oppressed, and afflicted. These, then, friends, would be the natural outcomes one would expect if that is true. If we've rebelled from God, then we, of all people, are the right ones deserving of being crushed, being pierced, being oppressed, and being afflicted. But this passage creates a great exchange in God's grand activity in the world. And here, all the clever pastor stories fall flat. Every Easter, you try to come up with a new one that captures the notion of God substituting himself for you. Perhaps the best imagery actually comes from the Bible itself. And this is the one that Isaiah's text actually anticipates. When we consider the Old Testament sacrificial system, we have a built-in picture, like a living drama, of this playing out. As the people would bring a sacrificial animal to the priest, and what would the priest do? They would take that perfect substitute, they would place their hands on the animal, and they would communicate something mysterious taking place. The individual sin gets placed on the animal. And then what happens to the animal? It dies. And in its death, its blood substitutes for the one bringing the offering. It stands in the place of the worshiper. The spotless animal carries away the sins. The person isn't crushed, the animal is. This is the picture, verse 10, of a guilt offering. And now the people are given a picture of what the coming Messiah would do. He's going to be a servant who's going to do that. The Apostle Paul describes it this way. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have common language uh, to describe someone who, uh, who kind of gets the just consequences for their actions. They're an evil person, they do something really bad, and you might say, he, gets what, he got what was coming to him, right? He got what was coming, that communicates, he got the just reward for him. So there's a switch here. The servant's going to get what was coming to you. He's going to get what was coming to me. He's going to die for us. And then in verse 7, we get a servant who's faithful even when we're not. He's oppressed and afflicted. He didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before his shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment, and who considered his fate? He was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of the people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and he had not spoken deceitfully. Yet, it was the, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. These verses anticipate a servant who is faithful to accomplish the work. He was like a sheep going to the slaughter. He was silent. A point that's fulfilled when Jesus does not try to defend himself or get off the hook before the leaders of his day. Isaiah pictures here a real death. He's cut off from the land of the living. He's placed in a grave, even though he knew no sin that was deserving of this fate. He'd done no violence. He'd not spoken deceitfully. But notice here, we see the Trinity at play in this passage. Not only was this sheep willingly substituting himself for the sins of rebels like us, this was in fulfillment of the purposes of God the Father. It was God's will to crush him. And Jesus didn't go kicking and screaming. He fulfilled the Lord's purposes. Friends, isn't it a beautifully encouraging thought for us this Easter to think that from the beginning of the world, God the Father had a plan in mind to address the brokenness of your sin. Perhaps you're here this morning and your concept of God is of a divine policeman parading around the universe, attempting to write tickets for your moral sidesteps. The picture of Easter Sunday is not God as a moral policeman, but a God who demonstrates his great love for you, that while you were still sinners, Christ died for you. He's not writing tickets, he's tearing them up. And then lastly, we have a servant who wins victory and gives it to us. Verse 11, after his anguish, he'll see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. He'll carry their iniquities. Therefore, I'll give him as a portion. He will receive the mighty as a spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sins of many and he interceded for the rebels. The song anticipates the reason this is a celebratory day for us. It's not merely the fact that this servant died in our place, but that he won victory for us. His resurrection is our resurrection. The text doesn't explicitly speak of resurrection, but it certainly hints at it. He's going to see light and be satisfied on the other side of the sacrificial death. Clearly, that's not something that a sheep could do when it dies as a substitute. He's going to receive a portion or a spoil. And this is going to be in the form of the many he has forgiven. The victory is going to result in him getting people as a reward. What kind of people? Those who through faith have depended on the sacrifice. Those who got peace, healing, verse 5, verse 11. Those whom he justified. Verse 11 again. Those whom he carried away their iniquities. This song pictures a group of people who will get peace, healing, justification, and forgiveness through this suffering servant's work. Once again, we see all the outcomes that everyone in this room desires, whether you're in Christ or not. Peace, healing to not be under the weight of condemnation for your sin, to not have to live in shame, to be forgiven. And friends, to those of you, all of you, who long for those things, I hold out not a path to a better you, but a person the person of Jesus Christ, who is the only one capable of forgiving your sins, who is the only one capable of substituting in your place, who is the only one capable of giving you lasting peace, who is the only one who promises eternal hope. Today, this Easter, turn to Christ and be saved This morning, we extend to all those who have done that. The beauty of this communion meal, let me invite our servers forward now. We're going to pass the elements of the Lord's Supper, a meal that testifies every time we take it of the reality that God is for you. As we receive these elements, I ask that you would just hold them uh, where you are, and just a minute, when everybody has the symbol of Christ's body, his blood, we'll receive these elements together. In the meantime, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, I'm going to ask that you pass on taking these elements, and that you, you pray, that you talk to God about the reality of your need before Him. that in this moment, you can experience the peace, salvation, and forgiveness that comes from God. If you're here and you're in Christ, let me invite you to use this space to pray, maybe even pray together as a family, to thank God that he is for you because of Jesus. And in just a minute, when everybody has the elements, I'll lead us to take them together. God, we praise you that you are for us. We readily admit that there is nothing in us that is deserving of that reality. What is ours is sin, iniquity, brokenness, shame, guilt. And yet, in the face of that, you demonstrated your great love for us in that you've sent Christ to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to become all that we long to avoid, to pay a price that we know we deserve, and to grant us victory that we could never earn on our own. We stand united to the person of Jesus. He is our only hope in life and in death. As we receive this picture of the body and blood of Christ, might you embolden our confidence, might you remove shame and guilt would you lift up our eyes from the fear that crushes us? Would you bring encouragement, joy, hope, and peace because of what Jesus has already done for us? He took breath. When he'd given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to them, saying, "This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me." And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, "This cup is poured out. For you. It is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of Him. And now join me as we stand and sing to a God who is for us.